0: Before I start the episode today, I just want to warn listeners that there's some cursing in this episode, and if you know Cindy Killian, the Winona State University professor who is our guest today, you're not too surprised. So if there are small children around who you want to shield from minor profanity, I'll suggest popping some headphones in now. So, do you have questions? I do. I researched you this morning. Oh, you did? Because yeah. I've got feature writing. They got to research
1: me because they got to interview me on Monday.
0: Oh, those <laughs> poor souls. Good luck to <laughs> the Well, they immediately went
1: to re- rate my professor. They're going, Do you read
0: this? I saw day? that and I was like, I'm not going to look at that.
1: Well, I That's saw the pointless. marginalized people that yeah. bark on that thing. So. Whatever. Because one of the first ones I got was, She Hates Men because she's a D oh, star, star, star E. And I'm like, do you think they mean dyke?
0: I think they do. I
1: thought, I am a dyke. What's the problem? So, yeah. Yeah.
0: And why would they censor that? That's such an odd word to censor. I know. Interesting. Students. Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. I looked on my dad on Rate My Professor one time. Yeah. And I was telling him about it because he had some pretty good reviews. And he was like, What's my hotness rating? Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, Dad, but you're, like, not
1: rated for yeah. well, They were trying to tell me I was a three, and I'm going, I am not a fucking three on the <laughs> hotness. Sorry. That's, uh, I don't even think that should be there. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm Kim Schneider, and you are listening to iDath Doth Protest. On today's episode, you'll be hearing from Cindy Killian, a Winona State journalism professor who has devoted a large portion of her life thus far to activism that fights for LGBTQ and Native rights.
1: Uh, originally I'm from Coffeeville, Kansas, mm-hmm. which is on the border of Oklahoma and Southeast Kansas. Born there, went to high school there,
0: okay. where the
1: Dalton brothers got killed. Oh. Yeah. That's our claim to fame. Mm,
0: good. <laughs> where did you go after that?
1: Well, I from there, I went to, actually, I went to community college, went to K-State in Manhattan for a year, and then dropped out of school, because uh, I was having fun partying and stuff. So it wasn't until 78, see, I graduated in 73, I dropped out in 76, and then I went back in 78 to the University of Missouri School of Journalism, uh, and was lucky to get in there, cause my grades sucked. Um, and then I got my undergraduate degree. I worked in Oklahoma. I worked in Missouri and Oklahoma and landed up at Bartlesville and was editor there for like seven years. Um, and at that time decided to go back and get my master's at the University of Oklahoma. So I did that, graduated in AD, um, then no, that was my undergraduate. I graduated in 92 and got this teaching position in 92. And then... Um, this one?
0: The one that
1: you Yeah, at WSU. Yeah. So that was, what, 25 years ago. And then in the interim, I got my Ph.D. at the University of Oregon.
0: And then, so you moved back to Winona after that, yes? Uh, yes. Or La Crosse, technically? Found City. Cindy was my journalism advisor in college and became my mentor and a good friend. Anyone who knows Cindy well would agree she is blunt and opinionated, yet incredibly caring. As a freshman, I remember being afraid of her. When I was trying to decide if I wanted to double major in English and journalism, I went to her for advice. I said, what should I do? You know, the classic freshman not quite understanding no one is going to make my decisions for me anymore. Cindy's response has always stuck with me. It's similar to what she told me last spring semester, right before I graduated when I was crying in her office because I was panicking about what to do when school ended. Cindy said, and this is word for word, you got to fucking figure it out yourself. You've been politically active for a long time. And I remember one time in class you said you think that started when you were a little girl.
1: Do you remember oh, Well, I don't know if— poli- Or my, your
0: stubbornness, maybe, or your— Oh, yeah, is. my mom would
1: tell you that I, uh, I was one of those children that could not be told what to do. Um, I constantly fought her on those issues. So I think it's in my genes to be a little nonconformist and certainly um, outspoken, because that's just who I am. Um, so, yeah, if Mom were alive, she would— uh, she would attest to the fact that uh, I've had that streak in me because <laughs> uh, I know she'll, she'd tell stories about how I'd, I'd bring schoolmates over to the house because maybe they were having problems at home or they didn't have anywhere to live. So I'd bring them home and ask mom to feed them and stuff. and So I've always kind of had that and, mm-hmm. and where I got it, I don't know. Because neither one of my parents were ever like that. <laughs> they they look at me going, my God, what did we breed here? <laughs> so so I think it's just a genetic disposition or a personality disposition. You're 60, 61 now? 60? 60. 60 well, I was born in 55. I'm 61. No, I'll be 61 this year in September.
0: But I know you were pretty involved in like the second wave of feminism right or was it yeah second wave um and that was kind of happening right when you were what 20s you were pretty young or maybe even younger than that
1: yeah actually I remember um I um let's see 19 I graduated from undergraduate school in 1980 and I was in Ardmore and was invited to a consciousness raising group Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Uh, so I was 55, 65, so I was 22, 23, um, and at that meeting, um, I joined now, because we were trying to get the ERA passed, and it was consciousness raising, um, so that was kind of, although I'd taken some classes in undergraduate school, so I was familiar with all the concepts, and that's, then I joined another group of women, um, who were hardcore feminists. Um, So that kind of started my career in feminism, I guess. So yeah, second wave. Well, you know, I was an editor until 1992, until I come up here to teach. And as a reporter and as as an editor, um, you have to gain people's trust and you have to have credibility. So you kind of give up your right to actually be involved politically in anything. So I went to the meetings and stuff, uh, but I wasn't publicly involved in anything because I didn't want my sources to hate me and not talk to me. That's for the same reason I lived openly as a lesbian, but um, people that didn't know me did not know I was a lesbian and I wasn't going to tell them because living in Oklahoma in 1980, uh, people would have quit talking to me. Um, so I went to that group um, and I know it raised my consciousness uh, to be more aware of how I was being treated uh, what I was being paid uh, so internally um, I would speak up every once in a while regarding those in- instances that I felt um, were discrimination uh, but outside that newspaper then I had to be pretty uh, Straight, white heterosexual <laughs> to be accepted and uh, don't be no feminist. So it wasn't until I got up here that actually I felt the freedom to start getting involved politically and, as they say, pushing myself to the forefront of issues uh, that I felt need to be addressed. And when another genetic disposition is if I don't see something being addressed, then I'll do it. During my newspaper years, I was, it was just kind of lay low and subscribed to that. And of course, I did a lot of reading and stuff like that.
0: Let's talk about some of your activism in lacrosse. So you were one of the founding mothers of the, the LGBTQ center there, yes. right? mm mm-hmm. um, And at different times, you've been president twice. twice. Yep. And then you've been on the board, too, mm-hmm. board of directors. Um, how long have you been, how long has that been going, how long have you been involved in that, what particular things are you, that stick out in your mind when you think about that experience?
1: Well, you know, we, uh, that is fallout from a friend of mine's master's thesis. She was getting her education degree or counseling degree or something, and she decided that she was going to do this survey for LGBT. Now, mind you, this was I believe it was two thousand four. So that was twelve years ago. Um, so she ga uh, gathered all this data and she called a bunch of us old lesbians together and said, Look, it looks like there's a need here for this kind of thing. So we spent oh God, probably about eight months cussing and discussing and then getting the paperwork through so we'd be a five oh one three C and yada yada and um got some grants and uh, opened shop on the—it was in the—is it called the Scenic Building uh, in downtown La Crosse that has that Mexican restaurant in it. It's on, um, 3rd Street. Anyway, it was an office space, so we had uh, little, three little rooms. Um, and some people contributed a couch and some stuff, so we kind of set up shop uh, and tried to get the word out, and um, wow, now it's uh, it's 12 years later and it's still going. It's uh, now located on 8th Street. We have, at one point we had, um, we were downtown on Pearl Street with a big uh, window front, um, and one, the landlord there was terrible, and we were having difficulty, but we found that um, we wanted visibility, and it worked for a little while, but then our support groups were going, you know, we don't want to sit in front of that front glass plate window, which I totally understand. So uh, we we moved to this other, um, it's a office space, and it's got one, two, three. Four rooms. They're very small, but they're big enough for our um, our um, our uh, galaxy kids to meet. And we have board meetings and other kinds of stuff down there. So yeah, I was still going it. Um, at one point, when I went back for as president the second time, it uh, I think it had about three thousand dollars in the checking account. So I came in and. Um, did a lot of things that needed to be done, and got some money. And so, um, yeah, still going. I, I, At this point, I think it's having financial difficulties. And I'm not going to go back to do it, because I've spent 11 years of my life doing it, um, which is unfortunate, because right now, I think we really need the Resource Center if nothing else, we definitely need the advocacy with that transgender thing yesterday that Trump did. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, the LGBT community is feeling uh, under threat as well as the Muslim community and the immigrant community. Um, Yeah, so we really need that. And I'll continue my advocacy. I just have chosen at this point to let go of that
0: so what vehicles are you do you foresee yourself continues continuing your advocacy
1: well it depends on what happens Mm -hmm. I mean I'll continue writing letters to the editor and um, or guest editorials and stuff Um, and then it just depends on what we need to respond to that I'll kind of Because at one point, because now I'm feeling really under threat, so um, all these activist groups are popping up, and I'm going, where the hell were you 10 years ago, you know, when we were trying to move the community here and yada yada. And uh, so I've gone to several meetings of several different groups, trying to be selective about what I do and who I do it with. And unfortunately, there's a lot of duplication, so um, I have to be careful because I don't want to be duplicating somebody else's efforts. So I found this. Oh, I meant to get let Keylock know. I was watching um, All In with Chris Hayes last night. Yeah. Michael Moore was on there, mm-hmm. and he briefly mentioned this free. It's a free app. It's called Five Calls and see you got five calls to make three calls to make it'll give you the information about the issue it'll tell you who to call it'll give you a script wow yeah
0: that's nice
1: so um i intend to start using this more frequently in terms of um because right now i mean with the republicans like skedaddling and not having their constituency meetings because we're employing the same tactics as the Tea Party. Um, Right now, the closest thing I've heard that's effective is just a barrage of phone calls. So I'm going to start doing that daily, spending the first 20 minutes of my day just calling and leaving voicemail or whatever. Mm -hmm. So at this point that's, and then I've joined um, an indivisible group and I'm doing news monitoring. So, of course, I do that. So I'm doing that for them. And um, I went to the uh, shoulder-to-shoulder rally for immigrants down there. I wasn't part of it, organizing it. Um, So I'm just going to be selective because I've been doing activist work and organizing for 25 years. And I'm getting ready to retire, which means I will have more time to to devote to that kind of work but i'm i'm uh, i'm tired i'm gonna kind of back off it's time for you young people to step <laughs> up and and uh, carry on the tour so
0: i can't remember are you 20 percent cherokee is that right
1: i don't know what percentage i am but cherokee and possibly possibly Osage, but I can't really say. I've done some genealogy research. I, um, When I was in Bartlesville, my beat was the Cherokee Nation. And I actually worked with the great, great, great granddaughter of Chief John Ross. And so I knew Wilma Mankiller really well because that was my beat. Um, and then um, I started participating in the ceremony and stuff down there. So um, I don't know what percentage I am, but culturally I feel, you know, I'm, I'm there. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you think, because um, you didn't find out till later in life, right?
1: No, that not you... till after my uh, grandmother died.
0: Yeah. So how, I guess I'm wondering about the timeline of that with you working that beat, too, and, like, I'm wondering at what point did that that become a really crucial issue for you?
1: Well, it was, um, never, well, so Grandma was still alive when I was working in Bartlesville, and at that point I had already, um, um, gone over the ceremony and was kind of doing that, and then there was a, a group of elder women that did their, uh, wild onion and egg dinner, and I was always involved in that and stuff. Um, and then when Mom, uh, grandma died, I got this photograph where clearly there's an Indian woman in it um, and my grandmother's mother, who died when she was two years old, so I had no information about her. So we went on a hunt down to Kansas and stuff, uh, and we located her, and that's where my great-grandmother, my grandmother's mother, got married in her home, but I have yet to find any documentation about the relationship, um, so, you know, and by then, I was kind of, uh, into, you know, in with, hanging with the Native people, and so through that, I began getting interested in Native issues, and actually, my dissertation is on, um, on, um, um, oh my god, I hate getting old, <laughs> on, okay. um, NAGRA, the NAGRA's repatriation, it was on repatriation, uh, so I looked at newspaper coverage of, um, of, uh, repatriation and how those things got framed, um, because a lot of objects, you know, white people, think, are art. <laughs> and we've even got that issue here because someone donated some kachinas to us. So me and Terrell Portman, who's Cherokee, who's the dean over at the education, and a couple other people um, are trying to find the provenance of them because if the provenance, if they've been stolen or not made for the commercial market, then we are insisting that they find the the rightful owners and return them because a kachina is not a fucking piece of artwork kachinas are made to be placed outside and as they disintegrate um, then power is associated with that disintegration but white people like to put them in cabinets and shit mm-hmm. so my dissertation is on that when we were in New Zealand we spent um, nearly all of our time with Maori people down there the indigenous people um, and they just did a, a haka for standing rock have you seen it no I, well, haven't. I have to show it to you it's, I love the haka it's so empowering yeah
0: yes. <laughs>
1: so that was kind of fun um, you know hanging out with indigenous people down there and when we were in Australia um, we hooked up with some Aboriginal people, but they're they're a lot more difficult um, to get into that because of their history is totally different than Mary. In fact, I was stunned in Australia. It was nineteen forty seven up until then you could get a permit to kill an Aboriginal person. Wow. Yeah, so their history is about as brutal as ours. Yeah. Uh, and the Maori were, you know, they still share that history, but it wasn't really brutal. There was the an but it wasn't. You could just go out and shoot a native person. It's like, oh my God.
0: Can you remind me what this is called? Just to clarify, when I say this, I am referring to the about three inch tattoo on the side of her neck placed under her left ear.
1: That's a mocha.
0: A mocha. Okay. Yeah.
1: So I got my mocha.
0: And that's from Maori tradition, right? Yes. Okay.
1: And usually men, uh, men have full facial mochas. Women usually have mochas just on their chin. But this, this is probably a tattoo, but it's, uh, from that, um, that concept of, um, boy, I am testing my memory today. papa. <laughs> so they have this concept that, um. When you meet a Married person, it's much like a Navajo person. They can trace back their lineage, mm-hmm. um, and you're familiar with Navajo, yep. you know, they trace back their clans and stuff. And Mary trace back their lineage to one of the seven canoes, um, and, um, uh, so this in particular was made, um, by a friend of mine who, um, Designed it to honor all my ancestors and all those who've contributed uh, to me as a photographer, as a teacher. So in a way, I'm carrying my my ancestors with me. I think that's pretty cool.
0: Felt that becoming a professor was, kind of your license to, be able to express your opinions yep. more. Yep.
1: So um, it gave me the liberty, not the license. Yes, but the, liberty. the liberty because of academic freedom, and uh, um, I don't have to rely on students liking me to give me information. I mean that kind of relationship no longer existed.
0: Mm-hmm. So what was it like for you during that period of time when? You were pursuing journalism, and you were, you were educating yourself, and you wanted to be politically active, but you couldn't.
1: Well, I wouldn't say that I, that I thought I wanted to be politically active, because I knew that avenue was shut off for me if I wanted to remain in journalism. So I never, I never thought about because my job was to go out and cover it. So I went out and covered politics, and I went out and colored, covered protests and stuff. And, yeah, I had sympathies, but I knew that I could not be a part of that, because that's against everything I've learned as a journalist. So I never really thought, oh, I want to do that. And it, when I came up here, I wasn't really thinking about that either until um young woman approached me about getting an LGBT student, because uh, I was the only— I was only lesbian here in 92. Well, I wasn't. There was a couple of other gay people on campus, but they were in the closet, and then I came. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was the token lesbian. So a student, a young lesbian woman, approached me to get the LGBT student uh, group started. So I helped her get that, and then the more I got involved in that, it led to this, and it led to this, and it led to that. So.
0: Mm -hmm. And you also started a faculty group on campus, too, didn't you?
1: Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I got from IFO, I got the first James Chalgren Award. Don't ask me what year. (laughs) Uh, But it recognizes uh, an IFO member for for making changes in uh, LGBT faculty and students' lives. And that's been...
0: Has that been kind of your core issue that you focused on throughout your activist career, or is that just kind of how you got started?
1: Well, I think that's been pretty much my focus in Native issues mm-hmm. I've, uh, I've been involved with, so
0: yeah. Can you say more about the Native issues that you've been involved with?
1: Um, well, locally, um, I, was kind of the instigator for what became the uh, Dakota Gathering, and prior to that, we used to have a powwow um, that I and another faculty organized over on um, used to be on the football field till so they put the astroturf in, uh, so the powwow went away, and I've done uh, what I called Native Voices. Uh, I think I did that for two years without any funding from the university, thank you, <laughs> um, in which about every two or three months I would bring in a, one of my Native friends and we'd talk about, you know, like Winona LaDuke was here, and um, Raina Green was here, and so I kind of did that for a couple of years. Um, I. Um, in in the instigator for the indigenous learning garden
0: mm-hmm. so which still hasn't gotten off the ground yeah because that's a story that i actually wrote when i was here as a student probably like two years ago yeah i'm going to pause here for a minute to give a very brief background for those of you listeners who are not familiar with this issue at winona state there are several areas of questionable artwork at Winona State that depict indigenous people, but the most prominent of them is a reproduction of the end of the trail sculpture by James Earl Fraser in the middle of the campus courtyard. The goal of the indigenous learning garden then is to contextualize the statue by surrounding the statue with artwork steeped in cultural knowledge. Essentially functioning as an outdoor classroom that would allow students to learn about the history of indigenous people. A history that is often conveniently erased and smudged in most history textbooks.
1: Well, the whole issue was I and a friend of mine worked on that. We took it to faculty senate. We took it to meet and confer and it was all a slam dunk. And they turned it over to the development office and then it just kind of disappeared in a black hole. Uh, And that was nine years ago. So before I left for New Zealand, we have uh, that young native woman here, mm-hmm. and she she wanted it. And I'm, going, yeah. Yeah. and I'm going, well, here's the drawings. It's gone through. All you need to do is make them do it. Uh, so she's, she's kind of reinventing the wheel. So I am currently kind of on a consulting group for the president. So that includes Indigenous Learning Garden, um, We're working with a couple of women, one's a curator at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts, um, to reframe the Sampson mural. So we're gonna do some text and then uh, we'll discuss more. Maybe we'll put, I personally would like to see some of my native artist friends uh, do something to respond to it and hang it up and like have a kiosk where we can have elders um, discussing Uh, the mural and I mean it's a stereotypical kind of thing. Um, Then were the end of the trail tears that started all this, that I was like, let's get that out because I was trying to get Indian students on campus. Um, Ashley, I think what's going to happen, I think the Arts Committee has approved this, we're going to move that to the second floor of the library and sell some of those Remingtons up there and then have it all together so we can contextualize all of that together. Uh, And there's some talk about uh, de some other artwork on campus so we can get some money to commission a native artist to do
0: something. As a university professor, as somebody who spends the majority of your time on a university campus, how do you use the space that you're around? Like, how do you see this space being an active vehicle for activism?
1: Well, I think we we have the, the, the liberty to do that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in the classroom, I want to educate my students. Um, so, we'll take a particular issue and I try to show all perspectives, not just mine. Um, and then, outside, Classroom, I'm active where I have been in the past with the LGBT, uh, the IFO, all of that stuff. And then off campus, I've also been active because um, I think I, as a university professor, because I have that liberty, I can model that behavior uh, for my students so they can see what an activist does. Because I think, well, especially feminists already have a bad name, and some people, you know, hate feminists. They hate activists, they want us to sit down and shut up, uh, and they hate LGBT people, they hate Native people, and if I can create that space in which people can know me and know all those facets of my personality, then I think I could either inspire them to, one, become activists or want to get involved, which I do want my students to to become politically engaged because it's their generation that is going to be responsible for the world. Um, And, or rather than inspire them, at least um, kind of eliminate those stereotypes that people base their opinion on. So there's lots of different kind of threads to that. So in my space, this is a, LGBT safe space, Mm -hmm. and in fact, I would, I consider my office a safe space for anybody, Um, anybody that is stressed and needs to talk or is experiencing discrimination, and of course, my job as university professor is know what resources so that I can guide students and those who come to me to the resources that are available and encourage them to do that. So, and I I can do that because I'm an old journalist. So as a journalist, you knew what was going on and you knew where everything was and you knew how important it was. So I just see it more or less an extension of my my propensity for being a journalist.
0: If you liked our episode today have questions or comments or want to sponsor the podcast wink wink nudge nudge email idothprotestpodcast at gmail.com you can also find us on facebook soundcloud itunes and tune in and if you like the podcast leave a review if you'd like to learn more about the indigenous learning garden initiative at winona state visit ilgiwsu.weebly.com I'm your host, Kim Schneider, and this is I Doth Protest.